You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I am Stefan Heinrich Simon, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, we all know that the war against Ukraine must end. It must end immediately, ideally, or at least as soon as possible in order to prevent even more unnecessary casualties, injured people, people who lose their homes, whose families are torn apart. It is truly atrocious. And we want to do something to help. And that is why we are going to donate all pledges that we receive as part of our Studying Pixels Plus subscription in March 2022 to Red Cross Ukraine in order to help those that have been injured, torn apart, that need medical attention. It's just pretty much all we can do at the moment, right? Yeah, but it is definitely something to do. And I think even outside of our Patreon program, if if you are feeling as if there's, what can I do in this situation? I feel kind of helpless. This is a scary, terrible thing. Uh, this is a great way to feel like you're helping. And so in any way that you can, as Stefan said, it needs to end immediately. And in the meantime, though, uh, people need help. So let's do what we can to help them. Let's do what we can to help them, indeed. And yeah, it is also an opportunity, obviously, for you out there that you can pick up a Studying Pixels Plus subscription for March 2022, and you can get a peek at our monthly Plus episodes. They will all be available straight from the get-go. And this month, we recorded an episode on the rise and fall of Visceral Games. That is the studio that made Dead Space, a very influential survival horror series that has been unfortunately crushed under its own weight. And we just basically took a deep dive into how that studio came about and how it eventually fell apart. If you're interested in that, then head over to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Today's topic is one that I'm very excited about because we're developing a series here that I, uh, in my head, think about as Dan's Storytime Corner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I gladly participate in your Storytime Corner. Yes, well, I am, as you know, very fascinated with the history of video games and how they came to be. And we've talked uh, a good amount on this show about what I would call kind of the, <laughs> the Wild West of video games. And that is that glorious time that we all know of as the 80s. Mm, a beautiful 80s during which I was only two years old. Yes, I was, I was but a glint in my father's eye, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to talk today about with Final Fantasy Stranger of Paradise being released, which is also, it's called Final Fantasy Origin, Stranger of Paradise. I wanted to talk about the origins of Final Fantasy, because it's a story that I, I don't know if a lot of people know, but it's one that's very near and dear to my heart and is one of those rare instances where I think the true life story kind of mirrors the narrative of the game. 
So basically, what we will be doing today is we will talk about Strangers of Paradise, the new Final Fantasy game, later on in the side quests a little bit, because, mm. Dan, you've got some first impressions. But in a main story, we will actually be focusing on the actual origins of the Final Fantasy series, right? Yes, yes, which is why I brought up that illustrious decade, the 80s, because back in 1987, or, or well, the mid-80s, there was a company, uh, you may have heard about it, it's called Square. So nowadays, it's called Square Enix, but back in the day before this merger took place, it was just a little, uh, a little kind of outfit called Square, a Japanese development company um, that didn't have a whole lot to its name. It wasn't really uh, the big mega conglomerate. That <laughs> it wasn't the Shinra Corporation yet. Yeah. It was just <laughs> another game company out there making games for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Wasn't it called Squaresoft, though? It was just Square for a while, and then it became Squaresoft, and then it merged with a company called Enix, and that's when it became Square Enix. And that's when things went downhill, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I think a lot of Final Fantasy fans would say so. <laughs> I felt yep. that way at least. But let's yeah. jump back into the eighties and to the time when it was still square. Because when it was, I've yeah. never really had a good handle on the very early Final Fantasy games. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you, so uh, we'll maybe talk about this a little bit later, but are you familiar with the first Final Fantasy? No, I think I have once played a game that was titled Final Fantasy One. <laughs> I I must say that I was very young, and it was a game that I had obtained through dubious means. Ah, according to everything I've heard of the actual first Final Fantasy game, it was not that. <laughs> it must have been. <laughs> I must have played something else, something similar. But it was not the first Final Fantasy, although it could have been, but uh, who knows? Maybe it was some kind of weird spin-off or some kind of hacked ROM thing. I have no idea. You might have been playing Mystic Quest, which is often... Yeah, okay. I think I'm, I'm piecing together your origin here, Stefan, with Final <laughs> Fantasy. <laughs> but before, before we get into that, so, you know, we mentioned uh, this company, Square. So it was this little company, little Japanese development company that back in the 80s, um, they were making, honestly, if, if you want a word for it, they were making kind of generic video games. So they had a number of titles, things like King's Knight, Mystery Quest. They didn't really stand out. Nothing about them really screamed ingenuity or innovation. It was just sort of more of the same, hey, there's this big video game boom that's happening right now. How do we make games to get on that train and get some copies sold? Were they already JRPGs? They had they had some role-playing game elements to them, but not nearly what we would think of when we think of a Square Enix JRPG. It was much more, all right, maybe you're controlling a knight, maybe there's something that you have to go collect, but it was nothing as substantive as the Final Fantasy games that would come to pass. So there was one developer... Hironobu Sakaguchi, who I'm going to be calling the father of Final Fantasy. Now, I should say this. Whenever we talk about creators like this, they're not solely making the game. Unless you're Toby Fox, you're not solely making the video game. And even Toby Fox, we must admit, he co cooperated with other people, yeah. Uh, this is the danger of auteur theory, right? There's always many people working on these projects. But I will say that for shorthand, Sakaguchi was the really the driving force behind Final Fantasy. He's a really interesting man, and he came to Square because he wanted to develop games. He really liked role-playing games, and he wanted to make this a career. And I can only imagine how scary that must have been back in the 80s when there wasn't the infrastructure of video game development that we have today. Yeah. I mean, even if you were Nintendo, you really you didn't have a roadmap. You didn't have anything to kind of fall back on. There wasn't this structure in place where you understood what the life of a game developer looked like. And for a man in Japan, a young man who was trying to find a way into the business world, this must have been pretty strange. 
it was probably pretty strange. It would have been strange for me if you imagine that you have no idea how you're going to make a living. You have to consider that this is not like today where you can make a game and green light it on Steam and it will be distributed to people, yeah. but you have to make deals with big publishers. You have to produce cartridges. You have to market it somewhere and get it into stores. So the obstacle to actually become a video game developer is much higher than it is nowadays. Yes, just a gargantuan task. Because as you say, there's it's not like... It's the equivalent, I suppose, to breaking into the film industry, you know, before we had things like YouTube, where you could just put out your work into the world and see what people think about it. So it was a gargantuan task, and it was one that wasn't going super well, because Square was not doing very well as a video game company. All these games that they were putting out they weren't big hits in the in the mid to late 80s. And Sakaguchi, he kind of came to an impasse where he really wanted to create a game that was going to stand out. And he wanted something that was going to have its own personality, its own flair. So he took inspiration from games that were successful, like The Legend of Zelda, which had just recently come out, um, Dragon Quest, which was actually owned by Enix, the soon-to-be partner of this company, and uh, the Ultima series, which is a game series that we may have to do a whole episode about. Yeah, but it's basically, the Ultima series is like the predecessor of what we now know as the Elder Scrolls, right? I would say so. It's like a first-person RPG dungeon exploration kind of thing, right? Yes, heavily inspired by Dungeons & Dragons, about uh, Richard Garriott, the creator of Ultima, his he basically made video games recreating his Dungeons & Dragons experiences. And then they became, they took on a life of their own. Really interesting series and very influential in the RPG space, definitely. So they had very precious uh, inspirations to go by. Yes, but the risk that they were running here was that this was, this project that they wanted to embark upon, it was really, it was a last ditch effort for a number of reasons. So first, Sakaguchi was getting sort of disillusioned with his, with his, dream, I suppose, of becoming a game developer because there just wasn't a lot of success at Square. And on top of that, because of that lack of success, Square was not doing well financially and they were on the verge of bankruptcy. So Sakaguchi and his team of about seven developers or so, they came together and they created this idea for a role-playing game that took inspiration from all the games that I've mentioned and because it was this last-ditch effort, Sakaguchi said, if this isn't a success, I'm going to go back to university. I'm going to go back to doing maybe a more traditional job. And so because it was this last wish and it was this last uh, attempt at a success for Square, it eventually became Final Fantasy, the last fantasy. It is already quite telling when someone says, I'm going to go into a more secure career. I'm going to go to university. <laughs> it's like, I could call my PhD final dissertation. It's like, this is not a success. Then I'll leave. But I can't imagine the anxiety that basically is built into this when you think, yeah, just imagine you think this project, after so many years of developing games and being unsuccessful, this is the one. We only have resources for this one. And then we'll basically drop it because then it, we're bankrupt. We can't go on anymore. So this means an enormous pressure on everyone involved. These stories happen kind of frequently in, in creative works, right? We hear about this where it's like, I'm, I'm going to give up if this doesn't, if this isn't the hit, that's it. And I, I wonder, there must be also some kind of freedom with that where you say, okay, I'm going to do what I want on this. And if it doesn't pan out, I gave it my best shot. You kind of think, if this is the last chance anyway, then I might as well go all out and I might as well pursue ideas and concepts that maybe I have previously not implemented because I thought, well, maybe I'll do it in another time or in another game. And suddenly you sit there and you think, now I want to bring everything that I've got on the drawing board, everything that I think is worth it, that I think is good, that people ought to see and experience. Now I'll bring all of that in. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think I think that paid off in this case. <laughs> I think it's objective that it paid off because we're on Final Fantasy, what, 16 coming out this year? Yeah. That being said, there's kind of this romantic origin to these games that I, I think is so endearing 
And Sakaguchi kind of led that, and we got into this world of Final Fantasy. But before that happened, they needed to come up with what the game was. And so what kind of game are we talking about? What would Final Fantasy be? Well, they knew that they wanted to do an RPG because they were all interested in that. And so they, like Richard Garriott with the Ultima series, they took inspiration from things like Dungeons and Dragons, Legend of Zelda, Dragon Quest, all of these games that had these kind of disparate fantasy elements that they wanted to incorporate. But what they really wanted to focus on was they wanted to make the the party system a lot of fun. They wanted to make uh, the character creation one of the best parts because they all agreed that Dungeons and Dragons, the most fun is making your character. Yeah. And they wanted to have a narrative that stood out from other RPGs of the time. They wanted to look at deep themes of things that we see in Final Fantasy to this day, light, darkness, fate. Fate is a really big part of the Final Fantasy series. And so all of these elements kind of came together and Final Fantasy started to take shape. Yeah, this seems profoundly different from what we've mentioned when we spoke about all of these um, influences because games at the time were often not very narratively focused, right? I mean, there were, of course, right. text-based games, but... Uh, Legend of Zelda, for example, is a game that has very few lines that are actually communicated in written text. It's a little bit more action-focused. Mm. And is it correct that Final Fantasy at the time was already a little bit more on the text-heavy side? I would say so, yeah. There's uh, one, of the, one of the things that stands out about Final Fantasy, at least to me, is that once you kind of go through the, I guess you would call it the cold open of the game, <laughs> where... You play as these, your, so your party is constructed of four characters called the Warriors of Light. And they're these destined characters who are going to bring light back to the, to the world and bring peace and everything like this. After the, the opening of the game, where you defeat a character named Garland and bring peace back to this castle town, there's a huge wall of text. It, and it honestly looks like a Star Wars opening crawl, <laughs> where it explains the entire story and what you're setting out to do, which was weird, I think, back then, because most of the time, the only context you had was maybe on the back of the box. When it comes to other media, when it comes to literature, then this would have probably been a really terrible idea because yeah. <laughs> you ought to show and not tell. However, when you think about how games started experimenting with adopting strategies from literature, it might very well be understandable that such strategies that are like the easy way to go, even though it's not the most immediately engaging, were adopted at first in order to see how they fare in video games. Exactly. And I think that it it spoke to its success because if you're setting out to make a role-playing game, you need to know the role that you're playing. And this wall of text explains who the Warriors of Light are, it explains what the prophecy is, and what's going on in the world. So from the get-go, you feel connected with these characters that you've created. And I will say this, after that wall of text, the, the game does become pretty open world in the sense that you there's a number of places that you can go around to. You have to talk to different NPCs to figure out kind of what your next steps are. So it's not spoon-feeding everything to you. You do still have to explore and play the role of the Warriors of Light. Now, I do want to talk about um, one, one story as the game was kind of coming together. This is something that I, I recently learned that I think is fantastic. So you can't have Final Fantasy without the illustrations of Yoshitaka Amano. These are, I, I don't even know how to describe them artistically, but they're beautiful illustrations of the characters, character designs, the world, certain settings. He, he has such a particular style um, that takes a lot of inspiration from ancient Japanese art, but also beautiful um, sort of Italian Renaissance. It's it's such a particular style. I was about to say, I, I thought of Renaissance, and I, are we talking about these character portraits that would be shown on the screen while dialogue is running? Yes, those okay. are... Um, if you've ever played a Final Fantasy game with a an illustrated opening title... Um, th that's it. I have a massive book called The Sky, I think, 
and it's all of these illustr all this graphic design work that he did to set up the the world of Final Fantasy. Uh, honestly, the the look of Final Fantasy owes a lot to Amano, and this is such a great story because so, while they were coming up with the art design, somebody said to Sakaguchi, "Hey, we should get this guy Amano." And Sakaguchi said, I don't know who that is. I don't want to use them. And then later, <laughs> he was uh, looking in a magazine and he found these illustrations and he said, this is perfect for Final Fantasy. And he said, get me this guy. And the guy who, who told him said, that's Amano. We should use him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was a fun story. And it just kind of ties back into everything seems weirdly faded with the Final Fantasy universe. It is weirdly fated and also kind of cool because it shows or it goes to show that this person, that Amano, that he was not picked because of, you know, vitamin B, because of hmm. influence, because of relationships or something, but that he was actually chosen because his art was so perfect for the game that they were making. So it's almost like a blind selection process. Yeah. That he unknowingly underwent. And I think that also might be the reason why this art uh, appears to integrate so naturally. Even though it is quite different from what the actually pixelated characters on the screen look. But he just really takes these pixelated blobs and brings them to fruition. And basically draws them as characters as if you see them in your mind, you know? I think it did so much for the the heart of final fantasy back then because that i mean honestly if you if you want to go down a rabbit hole look at yoshitaka amano's artwork because and and put yourself back in the time before we had fantastic graphics that square enix is kind of famous for now right it it really brought you into the world and and put beautiful faces to these little pixelated characters Exactly. I think both of these images, on the one hand, the pixelated blob that you actually control, and on the other hand, the wonderfully gorgeous drawing that is like, a, as you said, a mixture between ancient Japanese art, between Renaissance, a very distinct art style. These yeah. two, I'm going to call them signs or these two icons, they stand mm. in relation to one another. So the one is that you look at this at this pixelated blob and you have an image, an idea of how it would look if it were really high resolution. And then you look at the picture and then you think, oh, that's it. And at the same time, it goes the other way around. You reapply this beautiful drawing to that pixelated blob. And so henceforth, while you're controlling that blob, you, what you instead see are all the details of this Renaissance-inspired painting. I think it's a very great idea to further the involvement into this into these character stories by making them by complementing them with such a detailed art style i totally agree it all goes back to the 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 buy-in of the role play where all right you really you really feel like you're in it and i will say that the other thing that contributed to in my opinion the success of final fantasy what what made it stand out from other games is as we talked about the narrative the narrative was very focused on itself and what I mean by that is that everything has a purpose. And to take, again, Legend of Zelda, for example, Ganon in the first Legend of Zelda is just the bad guy. He's really no different from Bowser in Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. But the antagonists of Final Fantasy, even from the very first game, always stand as the narrative antithesis to whatever the theme of the game is. So... In the, the first Final Fantasy, you play as the Warriors of Light. Your sole goal is, it's a very simple role-playing hero story. You just want to bring peace back to the world. And so the antagonist, Chaos, by its very name, is trying to prevent that from happening and keep things in turmoil and in darkness. And so I, I almost unwittingly, or maybe not, I don't know, uh, who can say, but they, they set up what the Final Fantasy series would be preoccupied with, which is thematic dissonance coming to a head and making the player feel like they really accomplished something by bringing these, this, their own ideology to bear against the villain. Yeah. And really something special, I think, at the time. Always two forces clashing and you caught in the middle and you basically have to bring the world back to harmony, have to resolve this kind of clash. Yes. 
And they did it in a really interesting way. The story of the first Final Fantasy game, it's an unexpectedly a twist story where the character that I, dis- I talked about, Garland, this first villain that you dispatch to get the game started, it turns out that Garland and Chaos, this force that you're fighting against, are one and the same. Garland eventually becomes Chaos, and Final Fantasy I has the story of the, the big bad enemies that you're fighting are the four fiends that are taking over the world. And you come to find out that the four fiends sent Garland back in time to become Chaos. And then when Garland was back in time, he sent the fiends into the future, into our time that we're playing in, so that they would send him back, creating this infinite loop Oh, God. Yeah, effectively making him immortal. And so the whole idea is that this villain, it's not really chaos so much as it is a man who's trying to prevent his own death and stay in power eternally. You can easily see how this kind of story reaches a level of intricacy and complexity that at the time was rather rare for um for video games for uh, for jrpgs yeah and that also warrants this more engagement with uh, textual elements with literary elements with borrowing things from all kinds of different uh, media influences it was really almost a product of various different approaches whether it's uh, you know the more narrative approach of literary storytelling the visual design of uh, of the high arts, you could say. There are a lot more elements. Uh, but yes, I think it all kind of fits very neatly together in the sense that the parts, the individual parts of this game, all contribute to the overarching product that it eventually became to be. Yes, and perfectly said. I And I love that something that it's so simple in its complexity because it it all creeps up on you. The artwork that we talked about, the music that I haven't even touched upon by Uematsu, Nobu Uematsu, it all just came together in this beautiful symphony where it just worked. And now the big question is, how well did it do? So this is kind of, the answer is kind of in the question because we're still talking about Final Fantasy to this day. (laughs) But I do think it's interesting. So again, Sakaguchi kind of at the helm, he really believed in this project and he he wanted it to succeed. So originally 200,000 copies of Final Fantasy were ordered, but Sakaguchi insisted that that order be doubled to 400,000, which on a, with a company on the verge of bankruptcy must've been quite the fight (laughs) to do, but it paid off because the first game sold 520,000 copies in Japan alone. You have to imagine that the video game market at the time was much smaller than it is nowadays, that selling millions of copies is not a default situation, and that the Japanese video game market in itself was obviously, uh, well, bigger than probably in the rest of the world, but still relatively small on a global scale. So 520,000 copies in Japan, that's an enormous amount of games sold. Especially at the time, as you said. And I think that all right, great. We've got a success. And yeah, what happened? It. Yeah. And, and it, it latched on and sequel after sequel were made, but also something to be, uh, to be mentioned is that Final Fantasy, the first game had a very special place in video game history's heart because re-release after re-release, there was even one this year in 2021, the, uh, the pixel remaster or whatever it's called from Square Enix. Um, they keep going back to the first Final Fantasy game in one way or another, to the point where, by March of 2003, two million copies had been sold across all platforms. So there was a, a port on like the Game Boy Advance, there was a port on the PlayStation. So taking all of these into account, Final Fantasy 1, just the first game, sold over two million copies. Of course, bringing more and more people in as new games come out, and then people play that, and they think, huh, maybe I should just play through the entire series now that I like this one so much. And then they realize, oh man, this is really extensive. Maybe I shouldn't have made that terrible decision. (laughs) And then they think, wait, but why, if they called it Final Fantasy, then why are there like 200 (laughs) different games of it? You know, it should just be the last one. And then they get all confused. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let me tell you my favorite my favorite Final Fantasy thing ever. So Final Fantasy 13 has two sequels. Yes. So there's Final Fantasy 13 2 and then Lightning Returns. My favorite maybe my favorite sentence in the English language is Did you know Final Fantasy 13 2 ends on a cliffhanger? I mean, I love Final Fantasy. I love the Final <laughs> Fantasy series, but it just gets increasingly cluttered as they move on. To be fair, it already gets cluttered relatively early on as they start porting things and renaming them in the process of porting them. Right. Uh, so it was always a confusing series. Yes. And I think, you know, I'm I'm being very kind of uh, starry-eyed with this retelling of this story, but I will say Final Fantasy, as it, as it goes on, I, I, it's not a perfect series. I am the first to admit that. We could do a whole episode about my problems with Final Fantasy. But... I will say that there is a heart to those early games, especially, that I think speaks to how well they resonated with people. So if I were to ask you, Stefan, what you think the most famous, most well-loved Final Fantasy title is, what do you, what would you say? That's probably Final Fantasy VII, I would say. I agree. I mean, people cried when the remake was announced. Yeah, yeah. And... It's some. It's very special to me. Um, I know that much, and I think that whenever something is very special to me, I always like to look at its origin, which is why I, I love doing the deep dives of things like this or the common in our Triforce episode. I like to maybe apply import to things that maybe are already important to me, and. A story that I just want to share about why these Final Fantasy games, I think, stuck with people so much, apart from being just fun games, is that there's a narrative heart to them that is so palpable that it wears on its sleeve. And the story I want to tell is about Final Fantasy VII, which is very brief, but it's something that I think will enrich people's understanding of the game. So when Hironobu Sakaguchi was developing Final Fantasy III, his mother died rather tragically. And he dealt with that for a long time, and he was dealing with the idea of how to move on from a death like that and still live. Because as we all know, when we lose a loved one, we have to continue on. And that seems like a gargantuan task. And if this is sounding familiar, it's because something like this happens in Final Fantasy VII. And the brilliance of that game, I think, is that the narrative heart of Final Fantasy VII is that we do undergo traumatic experiences, we do lose people, but there are other people after that experience that we still have to help and are there to help us. And so Sakaguchi created the idea of the life stream, this force that binds everyone, you know, taking, taking uh, inspiration from all kinds of religious backgrounds, but making it, making it Final Fantasy VII's own circumstance. And I find the idea of the life stream and the trials and tribulations that Cloud and the company go through in Final Fantasy VII to be one of the most beautiful explorations of how to deal with grief that a game has maybe ever ever made. This tells us two important things about Final Fantasy. One is that ever since its inception, it has been a profoundly biographically informed series, Yeah, which is very befitting to the idea of the author, the auteur or maybe even a collaborative author but yes it is one of these series that are informed strongly by the ideas of one person and by specific experiences in life and the second thing that it tells me about this is final fantasy is infinitely and relentlessly romantic yes it doesn't let up when it comes to its illustrations when it comes to its narratives when it comes to its music Everything about Final Fantasy is so romantic. The live stream is one such thing. Romanticism, the idea that one's emotions and sentiments matter and that mm. they are to be somewhat externalized into the world. Classic example, it's like you, in a romantic sequence, in a, like a, a passionate sequence that takes place under, I'm just making this up, a tree in the night and the, like the, the leaves of the tree are like slowly falling and they're glowing in the wind and so on, right? Uh, all of these things coming together as if one's emotional sentiments are entirely projected upon the existence of a world. And I feel like all of the Final Fantasy worlds 
that exist, because every game has kind of a different world, a different law, they are all forms of externalized sentiments and emotions. I couldn't agree more. And I think that to go back to the the exploration of the villains, the antagonists, in one way or another, they're all nihilists. They're all, you know, totally against anything having meaning. Uh, you think of somebody like, think about, if you think about Garland or Chaos, it's just the idea of the absence of meaning. Or if you take a look at the the two maybe most famous classic Final Fantasy villains, Kefka and Sephiroth, both of them want to destroy the world just because, you know, Sephiroth has a little more... <laughs> Um, reason behind it, but he's still pretty nihilistic. Kefka is just a mad villain stereotype. He's just like, yeah. lol, I'm going to destroy the world. Ha ha. Yeah. Isn't this great? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think you, I, you're, you're absolutely right. The romanticism of Final Fantasy is, I think, at its heart, what makes this series stand out and why it's persisted so long. Because not every game can uh, meld, not every game series, let alone every game, can meld these different elements in a way that really resonates with people. And so I figured a fun way to kind of round this out, this origin of Final Fantasy, would be for us, because it's so personal, to kind of talk about our Final Fantasy origin. So I just wanted to briefly say, so you mentioned, you know, somebody would play a Final Fantasy game and then they would go back and find, oh, this gargantuan task of all these Final Fantasies. That was 12-year-old Dan Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> you did that? You played all of them? I did, yep. All of so, them? All of them, yeah. Which at the time was, was not a lot, right? Uh, compared to now. So, well, you say not a lot. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of hours of playtime. <laughs> I had a lot of free time as a kid. <laughs> <But> <laughs> my first Final Fantasy game was Final Fantasy X. And it's, it's still, I would say, as much as I love seven, Final Fantasy X is my favorite. And I loved it so much that I went back and I played, I played through all the games. I didn't do it in order because, uh, at the time I had to find them. So I got Final Fantasy seven, played that directly afterwards, then eight and then nine. And then all of the previous games were ported to, uh, the PlayStation. So my aunt actually got me the anthology and the origins bundle. So I got all these games and I would say from, yeah, probably 11 to 14. That was my gaming life. Ah, <laughs> uh, amazing. It actually is. Um, yeah, I did. I had a similar approach. I played the first Final Fantasy game I ever played was Final Fantasy VIII. Mm. Because that was the one that when Stefan was 12 years old, 12 years old. <laughs> that was a game that came out at the time. And I remember that it was so important to me because, if I may get a little bit personal here, mm. it was a time when I was uh, I was a little bit of like the bullied child at the time. And I didn't have many friendship connections. I felt lonely often. So what I did was, when I came home after school, being pretty sick of life and of people and had this, you know like starting puberty anxiety and all this stuff that's on your mind when you're 12 13 years old maybe and i i started up final fantasy 8 and there was this character squall leonard yeah who's kind of also this outsider and he's like really he he really dislikes other people especially at the beginning of the game he's like really i don't want to talk to you talking to you is a waste of time basically making friends is a waste of time and he undergoes such a profound development in his character and in the process of bonding with his party that it gave me hope, it gave me courage, and it made me feel at home somewhat. So after that, I was totally engaged and I played 8, 9, 10. Then I went back to play... Oh yeah, then 10, 10 2, obviously. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <With> dancing. <laughs> That was cool. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I also played Final Fantasy VI, I want to say. Mm. Seven, although never really finished it. Uh, but then later, Seven Remake. Uh, Twelve, Thirteen, and the, and the sub-parts of Thirteen. Fourteen, Fifteen, and that's it so far. Yes. Mm, that's it so far. But it's quite quite a lot. The, the very early ones, I haven't played. Like one, two, three. But uh, all the others, I think, 
pretty much, except for the online ones. In 14, I only played a little bit of it. Yeah, I've I've played when I was in that kind of 11 to 14 age range. I also played Final Fantasy 11, which is the first online game, which I I love dearly. Um, and I have played 14 quite a bit. It's it's a series that that persists, and I think it's almost like with with any kind of movie series or or anything like that, where even if you don't have the same experience that you did when you first entered it, there's a lot of connective tissue there that I think gets me excited to, I'm very excited about the new one. I've, I've <laughs> dived into Strangers of Paradise, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Um, anytime a Final Fantasy game comes out, I always think of, you know, I, I had a very similar experience, Stefan, where I was a bullied kid when Final Fantasy X came out and, you know, very dealing, dealing with a lot of internal struggle. And I, I remember very, very clearly the first time in Final Fantasy X, it's the turning point in the game when Oren, that great character, says, now this is it. Now is the time to choose. Die and be free of pain or live and fight your sorrow. Now is the time to shape your stories. I remember that honestly changed my life, I think. So yeah. I'm I'm very precious with Final Fantasy, but it's a, a fantastic glimpse into a creative mind wanting to push through barriers for himself and his team and come out the other side with a really beautiful success. I totally agree with your reading of Final Fantasy X and your sentiment, mm. because for me, I was a little bit older at the time. Yeah. I often, I remember evenings of grinding in Final Fantasy X, where I was just like, you know, having at that time then a couple of beers with friends. Yeah. And we were just like hanging out in my place and we were running around and defeating some bosses and so on. But it was always, I must say, as much as I know that Final Fantasy X is criticized by people and that it's fairly linear in comparison to many other Final Fantasy games and that it's also quite... It has its cringiness and it's ha it has its cliches, just like all the Final Fantasy games. But still, I have the fondest memories of all Final Fantasy games, I think, of Final Fantasy X. It is Final Fantasy X that I have most consciously experienced, aside from sometimes being drunk when playing it. <laughs> <laughs> I really also have, I think, the closest connection to a Final Fantasy game was... 10, and then afterwards, probably the 7 remake, which was just fairly recent. Yeah, I think that's basically, those are the two that I have such clear memories of. I, I love what you described about it, that they are inherently romantic. They are. And it's something that we've, we've discussed before about the idea of, uh, you know, not approaching things cynically. And I think that Final Fantasy invites a romantic look at it. And... It is, if you engage in it, if you get lost in Yoshitaka Amano's drawings and Nobuo Ematsu's music and the beautiful storytelling, uh, cynicism just falls away, I think. Yeah, sometimes a little bit of romanticism is what you need in your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your experience with Final Fantasy? When did you start and what mm. do you have the most intimate and most important memories of? Please let us know in the comments. And in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and do some side questing because we actually got even more Final Fantasy to talk about. What a show! <laughs> Let's do it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are back, and as you know, in our side quests, we always venture through the internet to bring you stories and articles that we find interesting and relevant. We also talk about our own impressions of games we are currently playing and all links that we reference you can find reliably in the show notes. Of course, now that we've started the conversation on Final Fantasy already, we also want to spend a little bit of time talking about the most recent entry in the series, which is number one, Stranger of Paradise, which Dan, you are currently playing, right? Yes, I miraculously broke away from Elden Ring to play Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin for a few hours. Um, I also, I played the demo extensively when that was announced kind of randomly a few months ago. And I will say that we're going from the sublime to the ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, I think... First of all, I this is a game made by uh, Square Enix in conjunction with Koei Tecmo. And I was very excited about that because I'm a huge fan of Koei Tecmo, especially their Neo series, which is their kind of take on a Dark Souls style game. Uh, lots of fun. I, I've honestly, if I'm being <laughs> very frank with you, between Neo 1 and 2, I've lost, I wouldn't say I lost, I've contributed <laughs> maybe <laughs> 700 hours to those games yeah that's a whole lot of time but i can't understand because the little that i played of neo 2 was just so engaging and i do know that koei tecmo makes great games yeah so maybe they are the perfect fit for something that is this is a spin-off of the final fantasy series right it's not a main entry it is really a spin-off that goes into a whole different direction and experiments with a whole different stuff yeah, Koei Tecmo has made their bones really in the past five or six years by taking existing intellectual properties and making these spin-off games. So they did like Persona 5 Strikers, uh, the Hyrule Warriors games, you know, any of the Warriors games is Koei Tecmo. Um, so lots of lots of creativity going on. So they've basically taken the world of Final Fantasy 1, which we've just talked about at some considerable length, and... They've, they've made it uh, the silliest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> so is this, it's, it's subtitled Final Fantasy Origin. Is that because it distinctly refers to the first Final Fantasy game? So far, yes. So the setup is that you're, you're playing as these three characters. Uh, they're so, the names are so generic. Jack, Jed, and Ash. Oh my and, God. Yeah. <laughs> And <laughs> in the main series, you got people like Titus, Cloud, Orin, yeah, Cloud, Squall, and then he's like Jack, Jack. yeah. <laughs> Come on. So Jack, and also I was laughing at I was laughing to myself because the idea that there's a Jack and a Jed, it's too many J names, guys. Yeah. Um, but it seems like the setup is that Jack, especially who's kind of the de facto main character, there are these three characters: Jack, Jed, and Ash, who think that they're the warriors of light these destined heroes because they have these crystals like the warriors of light do in the first game and so it seems like the prophecy is kind of coming about the same way that it does in the first game 
However, there's all these hints that something is off. Something's not quite right. Like the, the crystals aren't light crystals. They're dark crystals. And Jack, Jed, and Ash don't strike you as the magnanimous heroes of light. You know, They're not really the virtuous kind of characters. No, they just, Jack especially just wants to kill chaos. That's his whole raison d'etre. So <laughs> he's just Jack. He's just Jack. He's just, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think I'm, I'm pretty early into it because I've sunk a lot of time into the actual gameplay, which is, I think, really fun. You get to on the fly switch between jobs like swordsman and mage, and you can use all these different weapons and that's something that definitely stuck from Neo is that there's a ton of items, a ton of weapons and armor and different magic sets and all these cool things that really differentiate your play style. Um, and so far, it seems like they're maybe doing a twist on the first game where they're going to pull the rug out from under us at some point, which I think is an interesting take if you're going to do a spinoff. And so far, I will say that the most I've engaged with is the gameplay, and it's a whole lot of fun. Okay. Well, that's actually pretty soothing to hear, because yeah. I must say, you mentioned that this is from Koei Tecmo, and Koei Tecmo did the Warriors games, and that includes Dynasty Warriors, right? Yes. The Dynasty Warriors games are known for their very repetitive nature. Yeah. Is this something that you would detect here as well, or can I imagine it indeed to be similar to Neo, which is, I would say, a profoundly different game from the Dynasty Warriors and Hyrule Warriors games. Yes, I would agree. Neo is, it's similar to, I mean, taking its roots from the From Software Dark Souls games, it, it rewards different play styles. And you have a lot of different options to make the game really your own. Right now, I could see that happening in, in Stranger of Paradise, but I can also see that a common criticism of this game is that it's going to be boring like a Dynasty Warriors game. So I think it's a game that's going to reward you putting the time into learning its different systems and kind of developing your own play style. But I can see early on it feeling really repetitive. Do you think it has a chance to live up to its Final Fantasy name? <laughs> well, I think... Here's what I'll say. I have faith in Koei Tecmo, especially in the last few years, because I think that a game like um, Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity or Persona 5 Strikers, both of those games lived up, in my opinion, to their first party predecessors. So it could definitely be an interesting take on the Final Fantasy narrative. I don't know that it'll be as romantic as we were talking about with those early Final Fantasy games, but I'm definitely interested to see what they're doing here. Okay, well, I assume you're going to continue your journey into that and then maybe keep us updated in future episodes? Yes, look forward to another side quest because I imagine after however many hundred hours I sink into this game's subsystems, I'll have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might actually play it as well, but at the moment, I'm still very much engaged with Elden Ring, which is our second entry in these side quests. Number two, Elden Ring described as start of a, quote, new franchise, end quote, following enormous 12 million sales milestone. Article is written by Tom Phillips, published on Eurogamer.net, because yes, Elden Ring is unsurprisingly selling like milk and butter in just <laughs> over two weeks. After its launch, Bandai Namco reports that 1 million copies have been sold in Japan and 12 million copies worldwide. Quote by Tom Phillips here, Ahead of launch, Bandai Namco had projected 4 million sales of Elden Ring by the end of March. Instead, it has sold triple that, with several weeks still to go. End quote. So, Elden Ring has apparently sold the most copies ever for a game that is not already part of an established IP. Because we have to keep in mind that Elden Ring is an all-new IP. This is not... It doesn't have the title Dark Souls uh, 4, right? Are we at 4? Yes, Dark yeah. Souls 4. That means, obviously, it's not being compared to Zelda, to The Division, to Call of Duty, and so on. It could well be, though. But uh, it stands on its own feet and is a series that needs to establish itself first. 
And for that, these sales numbers are just absolutely baffling. I feel like in the case of Elden Ring, we've seen a pretty rare occurrence where a game is highly anticipated, mm. then it comes out, then it gets such positive reviews that it basically has a snowball effect. It catapults on and on. It's like, oh, wow, this game, even though you may, might not have heard of it before, uh, this is getting a 10 out of 10 everywhere. This is crazy. And suddenly everyone rushes to it and starts playing it maybe not even being that aware of what kind of game this is, maybe never having played Dark Souls or Bloodborne, not knowing that these are actually games that were usually still successful, but rather gated due to their difficulty, right? And to their high level of entry. I think so. I think niche is a good word for the From Software genre. A big niche, but a niche regardless. And it feels like Elden Ring has accomplished something which... I wouldn't have expected it has taken the Dark Souls or Soulsborne formula and has broken it free of the shackles of the niche, while at the same time maintaining exactly the identity yeah. of this niche. This is a pretty rare occurrence. This is like when suddenly a band like Nirvana makes it <laughs> really big without changing its identity profoundly. You know, this is like a rare occurrence. It's really uplifting, especially because, I mean, Stefan, how many how many times in the past five years alone has there been a game that was announced and was overhyped like crazy and then was a massive disappointment because of the overhype? Exactly. Cyberpunk, No Man's Sky, these are just the two that come to mind right away. But I, I'll be honest, I was very apprehensive about Elden Ring. I didn't want to know anything about it because I was so worried that the hype would taint my experience with it and i have to say it it didn't it totally surpassed everything so to see that it's being it's gotten such success and that this is maybe the start of a new uh dark souls trilogy you know the elden ring games great fantastic uh it's opened itself to a wide audience without losing its soul like you said yeah without losing its soul and actually notably also being developed by the original creators by the original yeah. creative minds behind the very very original dark souls game but from software this is even rarer that uh, not not someone else picks up on it and basically makes it big it was big before but makes it super big basically yeah yeah <laughs> it's just it's just befuddling but as you rightly said most likely this is not going to be just an individual occurrence in a press release bandai namco and from software both called this title, quote, a fantastic start for a new franchise, end quote. So in all likeliness, this is going to be a franchise. This is going to be Elden Ring 2, Elden Ring something, something. I'm not quite sure. I always, I'm always very cautious about these things. I, yeah. I think Elden Ring, from the way that I have experienced it so far, which is only the first 20 hours, I know that you have platinumed it and we're going to talk about your experiences in detail next week in the main story, but I feel like, uh, can't something like that just stand on its own? Isn't it great the way it, do we really, like at the moment, I couldn't imagine what an Elden Ring 2 would potentially do to even catch up with what it has already established, you know? Well, let me put those fears to bed a little bit because okay. I, I have, because I understand where you're coming from. This beautiful thing, can it just be its own thing? And I'll say that from Software has experience on both sides because Dark Souls 1, 2, and 3 are vastly different from each other. I mean, obviously they have the same kind of core mechanics, but they are such different games with such different narratives and themes that if they went that route and said, we're going to be doing Elden Ring 2 in the story, in the style of Dark Souls 2, I, oh, I would be so, so excited for that. Now, on the flip side, if it remains kind of a one-off, they also have Bloodborne and Sekiro, two beautiful one-off games that, it, no matter what, I think we win is the, the good thing here. <laughs> I think you're right about that. I am just cautious because I can't imagine that now that so many people engage with Elden Ring, mm. that if they made an Elden Ring 2, unless it's pretty much more of the same and becomes kind of 
just bland because Elden Ring is already enough. It's more than it possibly massive. could be. It's it's absolutely massive. And if they now do like, okay, we spend now the next uh, four years developing Elden Ring 2, which is going to be more or less like goes in a similar direction. I think people would just be more inclined to lose interest. Whereas just as you mentioned, Bloodborne, I love so much because it's kind of a singularity. Yeah. I would say we do not need at all a Bloodborne 2. Bloodborne is exactly what it is. Perfect. Yeah. And we don't need anything to it. It doesn't need a sequel. That's what I like about it. The happy medium here may be, going back to Neo actually, what Neo 1 and 2 did, which was massive base game and then massive DLCs that came out and expanded the story and, and continued it, offered new play styles and new areas. I, I could definitely see, especially with From Software's previous endeavors with DLC, with Dark Souls and Bloodborne, actually. Yeah. I could see them prolonging the first Elden Ring for years just by adding new areas or new quest lines. I mean, honestly, I think after six, seven games, they've proven that they know what they're doing. So I'll, I'll give them the reins a little bit and <laughs> just enjoy the ride. <laughs> I agree. I agree. You convinced me. And I think they are most likely going to do some kind of DLC that would add on what they already have. A DLC that, as I just kind of involuntarily implied already, is actually more of an add-on. Because it, mm. I could imagine that it's like a new area, so on that's like properly for the high-end uh, levels, for the end game, basically. Or that adds some kind of new fun twists to the story. At the same time, I'm also baffled by how much there still is that people are discovering. Yeah. Just yesterday, I saw... <laughs> did you see yes. that with the wall? Yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. Currently, the, the Elden Ring community is completely imploding <laughs> because one person uploaded a video where you can see them hammering away at a wall 50 times, just statically hammering against a completely inconspicuous wall until it suddenly opens and it was now corroborated that this is actually real, that it's not a fake, but there's still so many hidden secrets. And now what I saw on the Elden Ring Reddit, on a subreddit, I saw that people are now organizing to kind of come together and to split up on specific sections of the map because there are a whole lot of walls to hammer systematically At against everything. these walls. <laughs> yeah. Hammer against everything to find these secrets. So it's going to be months still before we have kind of as a video game community unearthed at the, all of the secrets or probably not even all but most of the secrets in Elden Ring well and and not to mention we're I mean we're only scratching the surface of people like I guess data mining and figuring out just looking at the code because I saw an interesting tweet about that wall situation which was the way that people determined that there were false walls in the Dark Souls games is that you can look at a wall in the code of the game and see that it has a certain amount of HP and it also has a certain amount of defense. So a wall with 999 HP most of the time will have 999 defense. So hitting it does nothing, right? But there are a bunch of walls that have lower defense. So hitting it will actually destroy it. So someone I think found out that this one wall had a ton of HP, but lower defense. And so they just said, what if I hit it a million times? <laughs> oh, God. That's the yeah. thing. The comment that I saw on it was just, God help us all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're going to clobber away at these walls for, for weeks now. <laughs> yeah. Well, best of luck to ye, Tarnished. <laughs> <laughs> I love how the characters speak in Elden Ring. It's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, beautiful. The writing is perfect. There's mm. one... This isn't a spoiler because I know I know where you are in the game, but there's a line that that cracked me up because it it said, uh, uh, that's a that's a sick way to fight, isn't it? And it <laughs> it means like, oh, that's a d deplorable way to fight. But the first way I heard it was, well, that was rad. <laughs> <laughs> You're properly shredded there, dude. <laughs> it's, it's even the first the first character you encounter really that is that has voice acting says something like uh head to castle stormville on the cliff maiden bliss and so on yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like it's just so fantastically voice acted and i think i'm not sure whether this is true but i think today i ran into a character 
who's actually voice acted by the person who also does the voiceovers in Civilization VI. Oh, no kidding. I, I think so. I'm not quite sure, but I spoke to this character and I thought like, eh? That sounds <laughs> very familiar. That sounds very familiar. Oh my. There's so much to talk about when it comes to Elden Ring and that is why next week we're going to do an entire main story on Dan's impressions on Elden Ring, on my first impressions of Elden Ring, and it's going to be a great review discussion of that game. Yeah. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode. Of course, if you want to, you can come by and visit studyingpixels.com where you find all of our episodes and have the opportunity to subscribe to Studying Pixels Plus to get a beautiful sticker, to get all of the episodes ad-free, to get monthly bonus episodes, and this month specifically to have your pledge donated along with all the others to Red Cross Ukraine. Thank you so very much for listening and we'll see each other next week. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.